0: Trust that your Thanksgiving was um, full of thanks, reflecting on all that the Lord has done for you. So we'll be looking at Isaiah, mainly chapter 7. It's been a little bit of time in chapter 8 and a little bit of time in chapter 9, but mainly Isaiah chapter 7. Before we begin, let me pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for... This cold weather, Lord, we're reminded as seasons come and seasons go that you are sovereign and providential in all things. You uh, hold the planets, the stars in their place. You are the one who brings um, the change of seasons that uh, so clearly manifest your authority over all things. Lord, we pray for this morning. We ask as we look this morning in the book of Isaiah that we would behold your glory clearly on the pages of scripture, that we would see Uh, what you have for your people in this passage, that we would see hundreds of years in advance. You had clearly predicted the coming of your Messiah, the coming of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to atone for our sins, to live a perfect life of obedience that can be imputed to us by faith. Lord, help us now. Bless this time. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So, like I said, there are notes on the back if you want those. They're a little vague. I didn't put a ton there because... I don't know, maybe depending on what jumps out to you, I just didn't want to restrict you to a couple of things. So if that helps, you have that there. Isaiah 7, 8, and 9. We spent uh, five or ten minutes here last fall when we were going through the prophets, um, and so we'll be able to spend uh, a whole 40 minutes here this morning, so I'm real thankful for that. Uh, This is a crucial text. Why is that? What is the big deal? Why look at Isaiah 7 in particular? Well, it's the only Old Testament passage that plainly and precisely says that the Messiah will be born of a virgin. Okay? The only Old Testament text that clearly, precisely, in no-nonsense words says that the Messiah will be born of a virgin. There's numerous texts that deal with the coming of the Messiah. Only this one, Isaiah 7.14, that clearly uh, refers to the manner in which he will be born, being born of a virgin. What's the big deal about the virgin birth? There's a number of areas we could talk about here theologically. um, I wanted to mainly think about it from a biblical point of view uh, in terms of that storyline of scripture. I would say this uh, if you have that heading, what's the big deal about the virgin birth? I would say it highlights and draws attention to God's power and the significance of the moment. Okay? Highlights God's power and draws significance. Or you could say highlights the moment, okay? What do I mean by this? Well, in the Old Testament, God intervening in the birth of a child highlights the significance of that child, okay? Anytime the text slows down and focuses on the birth of a child, it focuses, it highlights on this child. What do I mean by this? Well, just think of Moses in Exodus 2. We're familiar with that. That's what Mark has been going through. This is a prime example. Exodus 2, verse 1 says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman, verse 2, the woman conceived and bore a son. Who's that son? Moses, okay? Moses, is he pretty big deal in the Old Testament? Yeah, okay? Okay, the text is slowing down. There's a lot of births in the Old Testament where it doesn't use this language, where it doesn't pause and slow down. It says that the woman conceived and bore a son, okay? And you should already hopefully be having your alarm bells going because Genesis 3.15 says that the seed of the woman, a son, is going to do all these wonderful things like uh, restore uh, all things that created order. He's going to destroy the works of Satan. He's going to do amazing things, right? Anytime the text slows down, it's drawing significance to that, okay? You can think of Judges 13, uh, the birth of Samson. Hannah's prayer, the birth of Samuel, there's just so many instances of this in the Old Testament where it's slowing down, highlighting the birth of that child. Make sense? But, and this is the crucial difference, though, between those accounts and this account here in Isaiah, is that those women were married and they conceived their children in the normal biological way, okay? Right? They're man and wife, married, normal, biological means that child is born. The Messiah is going to be born of a virgin, okay? I'm not going to give you a biological lesson here, but that's normally not the way things work, okay? So that, in and of itself, when the text slows down and says, hey, a son is going to be born, born of a virgin, well, if you've been reading all these texts, okay, God intervening in the birth of a child, oh, Moses, this is significant, Samuel, this is significant, okay, God is now intervening This child is going to be born of a virgin. This is unlike anything else we've read in the Old Testament up until this point. Does that make sense? It highlights and draws significance to the moment. This is God intervening in a particular way unlike anything else we have seen in Scripture. Matthew, I believe, was a man who knew the Old Testament very well and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Matthew 1. Hopefully you guys are familiar with this. This is a Christmas text we read. He quotes Isaiah's prophecy of the virgin birth as being fulfilled in the birth of Jesus, okay? This is Matthew 1, 22 and 23. All this took place, referring to the birth of Jesus, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Here's the quote from Isaiah seven fourteen, which we're going to look at this morning. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel meaning God with us, Okay? Seems pretty straightforward, right? Because guys are like, yep, Isaiah prophesies this, and that's what happens. So what's the big deal? Caleb, I don't get it, okay? Why then spend time looking at Isaiah 7? Well, to put it simply, not everyone understands Isaiah 7.14 the way we understand Isaiah 7.14, or the way that I just articulated it. Uh, I would suggest uh, probably that Isaiah 7.14 is the most debated messianic text in the Old Testament. Probably the most debated text uh, referring to the Messiah in the Old Testament. Okay? Of course, there are liberal biblical scholars who reject the authority and sufficiency of Scripture, and they reject you know, divine foreknowledge or God predicting these things or causing these things to happen. They reject that outright, and they say, obviously, this can't be referring to that. Well, we can just say, well, we believe in the inspiration of Scripture, and we believe in the supernatural, and God can do whatever he wants. So, obviously, we disagree with them, okay? We reject the liberal scholars for so many different reasons, okay? But, this is important. There are also Bible-believing pastors and teachers who believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, um, that probably you and I have learned much from and respect and look up to, but they interpret Isaiah 714 differently. They interpret Isaiah 7.14 and the context differently. Contextually, they would argue that it doesn't make sense for Isaiah to prophesy about something 700 years in the future. Okay? It just doesn't make sense. Probably, uh, the prophecy, this is what they would say, it refers to a child being born in the near 8th century. Okay? So think of like 700s BC. Okay? That's what they think uh, is what's going on here. And that is all that Isaiah intended in context. All he intended was referring to a birth, uh, you know, of a child, uh, of a virgin, in, let's just say, you know, 700 B.C., 720, something like that. That's all Isaiah intended in and of itself, okay? But Matthew or the Holy Spirit, and this is where things get, I don't agree with this, by the way, so just, you're like, this sounds interesting, I don't agree with this, okay? Uh, what they would say is that Matthew Reads back into Isaiah and says, okay, yes, that's true, that happened. But in a greater manifestation or even a more complete or even more full fulfillment, this prophecy is fulfilled in a greater way, sometimes I would say in a typological way, in the birth of the Messiah. I disagree with that. There is typological, uh, typological uh, interpretation or types, typology in the Bible Uh, We know that because the word tupos in Greek, types, is in the New Testament. Uh, But I don't think that that's something we need to use uh, in this context. I don't think, if there are issues in Isaiah 7, which I don't think there are, I don't think the solution is to resort to typology. We don't need to read something into the Old Testament that wasn't there. I think Matthew read Isaiah contextually, and he was interpreting it contextually. If you're like, what are we even talking about here? I'm just going to give you what I think is the normal, no-nonsense interpretation, okay? If you want wonky interpretations, I can give you those. I don't think you do, uh, but if you want those, hey, that's great, okay? Here's what I would argue. This is a long sentence, but I want to say it. Matthew read his Old Testament closely and contextually and that by reading Isaiah closely and contextually, we likewise can see how the Bible is clearly pointing forward, not to an immediate child being born through normal means of biology, but rather supernaturally through the Holy Spirit in the virgin birth of the Messiah, okay? That is what we are going to argue for in Isaiah 7. The early church, the church for centuries, read it this way. It wasn't until the last couple hundred years that people started to do weird gymnastics with the text, okay? We don't need to do that, okay? With all that said, A way of introduction, let's get into Isaiah. So if you're not there, open up. Open up your Bibles. We're going to start actually in Isaiah chapter 1. I'm going to move through those chapters quickly. I need to lay out the context surrounding Isaiah 7 because, and this is key, I think if you understand the context, this leads to a virgin birth of the Messiah. Uh, I would argue Isaiah 1 to 12... Isaiah chapters 1 through 12 present a unified message, okay? So in other words, if you understand Isaiah 1 to 6 and you understand Isaiah 8 to 12 and they're saying the same thing, chances are Isaiah 7 is saying the same thing. Does that make sense? So if you understand 1 to 6 and if maybe you're confused on 7, but if you understand 1 to 6 and you understand 8 to 12, you can understand Isaiah 7, okay? So that's what we're going to do. Um, Isaiah 1. By the way, if you want more notes on this, I talked about this for three weeks last fall. So that was a whole survey of Isaiah, which is real profitable for me. Hopefully it was for everyone else. Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah 1, he opens the book, verse 2. He says, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. That is a reference back to Deuteronomy 30, where Moses calls heaven and earth to be the witness of the covenant that Israel has sworn themselves into. Isaiah is saying, measured against God's righteous standard, Israel is very guilty. They have been weighed and they have been found wanting, okay? They are guilty of sin according to God's law. Israel and Judah, remember the kingdoms have split at this point. There's the northern kingdom, which we uh, call Israel, or how the prophets refer to it. And then the southern kingdom, Judah, the ten tribes in the north, that's Israel. The two southern kingdoms, that's Judah. Israel has split, okay? So even just from that, is the nation of Israel doing well? Well, not really, because it's like they're in civil war. And we're going to get in Isaiah 7 this morning. They're actually fighting against each other, okay? So this is not good. They are a sinful people through and through. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 21 sums this up very clearly. How the faithful city has become a whore, okay? He is not mincing words. They are guilty and convicted of sin as such. Their sin is going to be punished. God says in Isaiah 1 verse 25, I will turn my hand against you. Israel has become God's enemy. He stands against them. Judgment is coming now. He refers to them as Sodom and Gomorrah. But, and this is crucial, this is pivotal, which is why it is on your notes as blanks. There is hope on the other side of judgment. There is hope on the other side of judgment. There is what? Hope on the other side of what? Okay, If you get that, you will understand Isaiah chapter 7. If you understand that there is hope on the other side of judgment, I think you'll understand Isaiah chapter 7, because that's the message Isaiah is preaching, chapters 1 to 12, that there is hope on the other side of judgment. Isaiah 126, afterward, after judgment, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Well, just earlier in verse 21, he says, the faithful city has become the whore. After judgment, verse 26, the faithful city, or excuse me, the city will be faithful again. Okay? It's unfaithful right now, and therefore judgment is coming. After judgment, there will be righteousness. They will be faithful. They will be holy. Okay? So after judgment, there is hope. That is what is going on. That's a nutshell of Isaiah 1 to 12. Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah gives this glorious picture. He talks about the mountain of the house of the Lord and all the nations, the Gentiles are included. They're going to flow to it. People are going to Uh, Come up to Israel, and the law is going to go forth. This is a glorious picture of hope, okay? Hope for a future. Okay. Then he talks about how their land is filled with idols and sin, and judgment will come because Isaiah chapter three verse nine was they they proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Israel is proud of their sin. It's not even that they're like, yeah, we don't, we don't talk about that, you know, the shameful deeds done in darkness. There, is no, there are no shameful deeds done in darkness. They proclaim their sin like Sodom and Gomorrah. They are proud of it. Therefore, what's coming? Not hope. They have what's coming. Judgment, okay? Judgment is coming for them. Chapter 4, there's this glorious promise of the branch of the Lord who will dwell in Zion. It says, everyone who will dwell there will be holy. What is that, judgment or Hope. Hope. There is hope. Chapter 5 is what one of my professors called silly songs with Isaiah. He starts going into this song, this love song of his vineyard. And the vineyard is referring to the house of Israel. And it is wicked. It is full of grapes. As such, it is going to be destroyed. What's coming? Is that referring to hope or judgment? Judgment is coming. That vineyard is going to be destroyed. That is what is in the immediate future. Isaiah 6 we see this glorious picture of the Lord who is high and lifted up, who is holy, holy, holy. And just by way of extension, of Isaiah 4 it says that there will come a day where, where everyone will be holy. And the Lord is the one who is holy, holy, holy. How are the people going to become holy? Through the Lord. You see what I'm saying? As it is right now, they are not holy. But Isaiah sees a future day where they will be holy. And then he talks about the Lord who is holy, holy, holy. That is how they are going to be made holy. Their hope is in the holy seed of the stump of the hacked down forest of Israel. Judgment is coming now. There's hope on the other side of judgment. Does that make sense? Track with me. That is what Isaiah 1 to 6 is talking about. The message has been consistent. Judgment is coming now because of their sin. There's hope for a future on the other side of that judgment. Isaiah 8 through 12 has the same consistent message. Judgment is coming now. There's hope on the other side of that judgment. We'll look at chapter eight and nine this morning, so I'm gonna jump to chapter 10 real quick. You don't have to turn there, I'm just summarizing. Uh, In chapter 10, judgment is going to come on Assyria. Assyria is a wicked pagan nation that actually the Lord is going to use to judge Israel. And then he's going to judge them after he's done using them to judge Israel, okay? There's just judgment on top of judgment. That is what is coming for them. Isaiah 11 and 12 Talk about the shoot from the stump of Jesse, uh, from the hacked down forest, like I said, uh, of Israel will come one who's going to be salvation for Jew and Gentile. It'll even be said in Isaiah chapter 12, verse 6, great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. So there's this consistent message. Judgment is coming now. There's hope on the other side of that judgment. Are we clear on that? You got that. So what's in the immediate, immediate future? Judgment, okay? What's on the other side of that? Hope, okay? You will understand Isaiah 7. You will understand why I belabored that point. So if you're not there, turn to Isaiah 7. Isaiah 7, verse 1. This is around 730-ish B.C. Isaiah 7, verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, Son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. Okay? Ahaz, he is the king in Judah. Remember, that's that southern kingdom, those two tribes. He's the king. Okay? Syria and Israel, the ten northern tribes, have united forces. Syria, in Israel, and they're about to attack Jerusalem. You understand narratively what is going on here in the story? Okay, that's what's going on. They've united forces. They're going to fight against Judah. Verse 2. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Ahaz and the people are terrified. Oh my goodness, we're under attack. Sound the alarm bells. This is not good. Notice in the text, this is important. Ahaz is referred to as what? The house of David. That is significant. Just put a pin in that, okay? The house of David. Just, this is where maybe you ask questions. It's like, okay, why, why does he say the house of David and not Ahaz? That's a good question to ask, okay? We'll come back to that. It's a, okay? Pin in it. Verse 3. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sheer Jeshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. So Isaiah's son is named Sheer Jeshub, which literally means a remnant shall return. If you guys have the ESV footnotes or NASB, sometimes they'll put that in the footnotes there. A remnant shall return. So already, this is very much in line with what we've been talking about judgment now, hope on the other side of judgment. Because he names his son like. Uh, A remnant's going to return, implying that there's going to be a remnant, meaning like there's a part left over because the vast majority of it has been wiped out. You see what I'm saying? He's naming his son, a remnant shall return. He's talking about, even in the naming of his son, that there's hope on the other side of judgment. Tracking with me? Okay. That's what's going on. Verse four. And say to him, this is what Isaiah is supposed to say to the king, be careful. Be quiet, do not fear. It's almost like he's saying, like, calm down. <laughs> Relax. And do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Remalia. Here's what Isaiah says to King Ahaz. Hey, don't worry about these two like smoldering twigs in the fireplace. You guys know, like when you have a fire and it's burning down, you've got like two little embers. They're not really anything to be worried about. Like you need to. Keep an eye on them, but it's not like a roaring log that's going to consume you. They're the last two twigs in the fire that are about to go out, okay? That's what God calls, uh, you know, uh, Syria and Israel. Don't worry about them. Verse 5, because Syria with Ephraim, the son of Ramalia, has devised evil against you. This is what they're declaring to do, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. So Syria and Israel's plan is to remove Ahaz as king. That's the whole point. They're going to wage war because they don't like him. Okay? We're trying to get rid of the king and place a new king on the throne. They're trying to get rid of the house of David. Okay? I'm getting my, ahead of myself a little bit here, but this is important. I think you'll understand. I want you to consider this. A messianic prophecy already in context is beginning to make sense. A messianic prophecy in context is already beginning to make sense because the threat from Israel and Syria against Judah is to get rid of the king of Judah, to get rid of the son of David who's ruling on the throne in Jerusalem. Does that make sense? There's a threat to the line of David. 2 Samuel 7 talks about the Davidic covenant. If you guys don't have that, you need to have that memorized. Not the whole chapter, just the reference, okay? Uh, 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant. You need to know that. You need to go back and you need to read it. It is crucially important for the storyline of the Old Testament. 2 Samuel 7 makes it very clear that the Messiah is going to come from the line of David. Okay? The snake crushing seed of the woman is going to come from the line of David. Well, if the line of David is taken out by Syria and Israel, we have a problem. Right? You guys track with me? Because then there's no seed. So Isaiah prophesying about the seed makes sense. Are we clear on this? Okay, I'm seeing a lot of head nodding, so this is good. Sometimes you get blank stares. Like, I'm talking about this with my wife, and she's like, I have no idea what you're even talking about. Um, No, this is good. Okay, in context, it's not bogus to speak of the future of the Davidic line and the coming of the Messiah when the threat is specifically against the house of David. Okay, verse 7. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Resin. He's talking about Syria, their capital, the capital, the king is Resin. Uh, whoops, skip a page. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Here's what God is saying. Syria and Israel, the northern kingdom, They chose their own human wisdom and are acting according to their own plans rather than what God has said. As such, judgment's coming for them, okay? Ahaz, don't worry about that. Judgment is coming for them. You need to respond rightly. He says within 65 years, Israel's going to be desolate. That is exactly what happens, and the prophets clearly attest to that. But here's the question. Ahaz, how are you going to respond? Notice how that verse 9 ends. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So here's the question, going into verse 10. Is Ahaz going to have faith? What is he going to do? You guys know the storyline of the Old Testament? Typically, you're okay for having a pessimistic anticipation that this is not going to go well, okay? Is he going to have faith? If you have faith in Yahweh, it will go well with you. If not, you're going to be toast. Let's see how he responds. Verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. God says to Ahaz, ask a sign. Ask a sign from me. If you have true faith in me, ask, and I will reveal it to you. Now, this is where we have to be careful readers of the Old Testament. Because Ahaz, like this sounds like a really pious response. I'm not going to ask a sign of the Lord. I am not going to put him to the test. At first reading, how many of you guys is like, that sounds like a good response? Is it just me? Okay, okay, one person, okay. I, no, it's like, I, I don't know, like that's maybe what I would say. I, I don't know what's going on here. This is a false statement of trust. This is a false showing of piety. This is not a good response. Contextually, Rather than seeking deliverance or salvation by faith in Yahweh, Ahaz has sought deliverance or salvation by works by trusting in the king of Assyria. Where am I getting this from? Turn to 2 Kings 16. 2 Kings chapter 16. This gives us the historical context that if we don't know, we have to read between the lines, between what's going on with King Ahaz. Well, we don't have to read between the lines because God has revealed the lines in the pages of Scripture. Second Kings chapter 16, look at verse 5. Then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to wage war on Jerusalem, and they besieged Ahaz but could not conquer him. That's like a verbatim quote from Isaiah 7, verse 1. We're talking about the same thing here, okay? Look at verse 7, though, of 2 Kings 16. So Ahaz, this is in the context of being besieged, what does he do? So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Now, I don't expect you guys to know this, but 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant, says that the true Davidic king, the Messiah, is the servant of the Lord and the true son of the Lord. What is Ahaz saying here? I'm not the servant or the son of the Lord. I'm the servant and the son of king of Assyria. This is sinister. This is wicked. He is rejecting the Lord. I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. So clearly, contextually, what is going on here? Ahaz is trusting not in Yahweh. He's trusting in the king of Assyria. He has rejected the authority of the Lord. And this is why he gives these, you know, pious words. I will not test the Lord. No, I will not put him to the test. Why? Because he's already trusting in someone else. He's not trusting in the Lord. He has rejected Yahweh, okay? Turn back to Isaiah chapter 7. Does that demystify, like, why he sounds so wonderful and it's actually wicked? That's what's going on. Verse 13, and he said, this is Isaiah responding, and he said, hear then, O house of David, Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This is important to note. This is a plural address. This is a plural address. It is not just to Ahaz. This is a prophecy for the whole house of David. Notice how he says that in there, right? He said, hear then, O house of David, and then all the the yous, Y-O-U, in verses 13 and 14 are plural, not singular, as in referring to just Ahaz in particular, but you all, or y'all. He's talking to the house of David, plural, okay? Past, present, and future. Notice what he says. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Just... Again, not a trick question. Running through Israel's history, are their kings generally bad or generally good? Generally bad. They have been weariness to the people and also weariness to God. And now God is saying through Isaiah, is it too little for you all to weary men? Ahaz, you're included, but also the king's past, Ahaz now and in the future, that you weary my God also. Remember, Davidic line is at stake here in context, and God is addressing the Davidic line as a whole. Ahaz is clearly wearying God, so God gives them a sign. Behold, verse 14, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God, with us. This is the ultimate hope on the other side of judgment. Judgment is coming now because of their sin, but there is the ultimate hope of deliverance from sin, in Emmanuel, God with us. Tracking with me? That is what is going on. There will be a true Davidic king who is the Lord's servant and son, unlike Ahaz, who will be king like no other. There is much debate uh, over this word here in Isaiah 7.14, translated virgin, uh, Alma. Suffice it to say, the biblical evidence and the extra-biblical evidence, taking in, you know, Uh, Jewish uh, writings, um, you know, in the B.C. period, stuff like that. You add all that up, the evidence points to the fact that it refers to an unmarried virgin woman, okay? No surprise here, okay? He's talking about a virgin. There's a book-length study that actually just came out a couple years ago, a couple guys where they go through every use of Alma in the Bible and in every single writing they could ever possibly find. At the very end of the book, they just conclude, Alma designates a teenage girl who is a virgin, okay? So does it refer to a virgin? Yes, okay? I'm not gonna go into that anymore because I think you guys believe scripture, okay? is a virgin. The content of this prophecy is clear. A virgin is going to miraculously conceive and give birth to God with us. That's literally his name, okay? I think it's clear uh, that this child is going to be unique and divine, but, you know, let's just say it's, I'll just grant the argument. Maybe it's not clear yet. I I don't know exactly what Emmanuel means, okay? It becomes very clear in chapter 9, okay? So we'll we'll try to get there. Verse 15 says, this Emmanuel child, he shall eat curds and honey. Um, The ESV says when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. It's actually probably, rather than temporal, it's probably um, causal, like in order to. So I would translate, he shall eat curds and honey in order to know. How to Refuse the Evil and Choose the Good. Um, that's, some translations translate it that way, and I think that's the better translation. Um, this child will be born in poverty, in exile, in order to know how to choo- uh, reject the evil and choose the good. By the way, curds and honey, that's not, like, good food, okay? And the, the context makes it very clear, like, this isn't the food of royalty, Which you would think, like, oh, the king being born, like, he's going to eat wonderful food. He's going to dine at the greatest banquets and all this stuff. No, this is a child who's going to be born in exile, okay? And he's going to learn how to distinguish between good and evil, unlike Ahaz. Verse 16, for before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread, Syria and Israel, will be deserted. They're going to be deserted, not because they want to leave, but because judgment is coming for them. This is why Emmanuel is going to be born in exile and poverty. Something bad is coming for Israel, Syria, and eventually Judah. And that something bad is Assyria. Verse 17, the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. What is this terrible thing? The king of Assyria. Ahaz gets his wish. Ahaz trusts in Assyria for deliverance. Guess what? Assyria is going to come deliver you, and then they're going to destroy you. Okay, this is bad. What's coming now? Judgment. Judgment is coming now. That's what Isaiah one to twelve has been clearly saying. The near thing that's coming is judgment, but there's hope on the other side of that judgment. Does that make sense? For a lot of people, it doesn't. (laughs) In commentaries and stuff like that. They'll do all kinds of gymnastics. Just read the text, okay? Um, I'll stop. Uh, I I don't need to say any more of those. I'm going to get in trouble. Okay, I'm not going to read all of Isaiah 7. Uh, He's basically saying this devastation is coming to the land. Look at verse 23. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. In other words, the land is a desolation. The land has just been devastated because Assyria has come through. It is not prosperous. Chapter 8. Chapter 8. I'm going to be somewhat brief here again. I'm just going to read verses 1 to 4. Then the Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Maharshalal Hashbaz. Now I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of, ooh, I don't know how to pronounce that, Jeberakiah, wonderful, to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name Maharshal Hashbaz, for before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria, okay? The reason we're talking about this passage, this is where people will say, this is actually the immediate fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. This, the birth of the son here in uh, Isaiah chapter 8, is the fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14. And I want to try and show you why that isn't the case. First, the chapter division is really unfortunate here because you notice in verse 4 there, he talks about before the king of Assyria, he's still talking about the near judgment in Assyria. Okay? So don't read the chapter divisions there. Don't read too much into them, okay? He's still contextually talking about the near judgment coming in the Assyrian invasion. And we get the birth of this son with one of the most beautiful names I've ever heard. It was between this and Owen for us. Um, Maharshalal Hashbaz. Maharshalal Hashbaz, what does that mean? Maybe your footnotes have a translation here. Something along the lines of swift to the spoil, speedy is the plunder. Swift spoil, quick plunder, something like that. What does that mean? Well, he actually explains in verse four. He says, the wealth of Damascus, that's a city in Syria. Remember, Syria is one of those countries that is attacking Judah, right? Okay. Syria, they're going to be taken into captivity. Their wealth is going to be taken away. And also the spoil of Samaria, that's a region in Israel, the other one of the two kingdoms that is attacking them. Both of those nations are going to be taken away into captivity. So al Hashbaz is simply a prophetic sign that Assyria is going to deal with those two smoldering firebrands. Remember those two smoldering twigs in Isaiah 7? Assyria is going to take care of them as well. And the birth of this son, al Hashbaz, is proof, a guarantee, this is going to happen sooner rather than later. Okay? There's some similarities Uh, between the birth of Emmanuel and Maharshalah Hashbaz, but there's just too much that's different uh, for this to be the fulfillment of this prophecy. Number one, uh, this is just to me obvious from the text, God says one child is going to be named Emmanuel and the other one is going to be named Maharshal Hashbaz. Those are different, okay? Those are two different names. These are two different children, two different prophecies. Number two, the name of Maharshalah Hashbaz deals with immediate coming judgment, whereas Emmanuel refers to hope on the other side of judgment, okay? Two different contexts. And then number three, the mother of the child is not called a virgin, but called a prophetess. This is Isaiah's wife, who is already has already had a child. Sheer jeshub in chapter seven. You tracking with me? So they're different. They're not talking about the same thing. More could be said. Hope you guys see the differences. The point is this. If you read a book or you're talking to someone, they're confused about Isaiah seven and eight, you can walk through contextually, here's what's going on, okay? That was my goal for this. Hopefully, you guys are like, Caleb, I get it. It's talking about Emmanuel. Yes, amen, okay? Don't give up on that, okay? Because the text is clear. We don't need to do weird hermeneutical gymnastics and stuff like that, okay? You can actually point people, hey, look, here's a clear prophecy of the virgin birth of the Messiah. And I know what's going on in context. I don't know about you guys, sometimes I open Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, I have no idea what's going on, okay? Hopefully now you guys can open Isaiah 7 and go, I know what's going on. Here's the context, judgment is coming now, there's hope on the other side of exile. Is it immediate hope? Oh, no, 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 judgment's coming right now because uh, Ahaz, he's trusting in uh, the king of Assyria. He's not trusting the Lord. He's got these pious words, but he's not trusting the Lord. And so the Lord says, hey, guess what? You're sinful and you need a savior. You need Emmanuel, you need God with us. And that is exactly what happens in Matthew chapter one. That's why Matthew quotes this because God was saying, you need God with us. You tracking with me? Okay, good. Rest of chapter eight, Isaiah essentially says with Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Isaiah picks up on that, okay? He says, uh, you know, the pronouns, they switch back to plural. Isaiah and others with him, they're going to trust in the Lord in light of coming judgment. Remember, judgment's coming right now, doesn't matter. We are going to trust in the Lord. That's the rest of chapter 8. In light of that judgment, the people, they need to hope in Emmanuel. Look at chapter 9, and we'll wrap up here. Chapter 9. Verse 1, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. That is quoted verbatim in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 14 and 16, Matthew says, this has been fulfilled. This is what has happened. So it's almost like Matthew is like reading Isaiah in context because he quotes Isaiah 7 in Matthew chapter 1 and then it's like he keeps reading and then he quotes Isaiah chapter 9 in uh, Matthew chapter 4. You see, like, he knew his Bible. He knew contextually, here's what's going on. What is this even talking about? Well, these people who have walked in darkness, they've seen a great light, those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, what is that referring to? It's referring to Israel has undergone judgment. The judgment has come. Assyria, and by extension, Babylon later. Israel is dwelling in exile. That has taken place. But now, as Isaiah 9 is clearly prophesying, light has dawned on them. Hope has come. What is the hope? Keep reading. What is the hope? Verse 6. Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. To establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I think this is some of the clearest language in the Old Testament referring to the divinity of the Messiah. That he is Emmanuel, God with us. He's not just a normal human being. This is unlike anything we have seen before. Look at how he's described. Wonderful counselor, mighty God. I mean, it's hard to get much clearer than that, right? So if you're like, man, I don't know if Emmanuel really means God with us, just keep reading. When light has dawned on them, it dawns on the people in the form of a child being born who is mighty God. Of course, he is truly divine. He is Emmanuel, everlasting father. I mean, incredibly clear language, prince of peace. Emmanuel God incarnate. He is the Messiah that we have been waiting for. Contextually, do you kind of have a, okay, I know what's going on in Isaiah 7, 8, and 9. Okay, last point. I would argue this is another example Uh, similar to what we saw last week with Balaam's prophecy in Numbers 22 and 24, that these prophecies are fulfilled in the first and the second comings of Christ. In the first and second comings of Christ. Yes, it's true. The son has been given. The virgin birth has happened historically, time and place. He is the mighty God. He is the prince of peace. But is he ruling on the throne of David and over his kingdom? Is justice and righteousness pervasive in all the earth? we're going back to Isaiah 6, is all the earth filled with the Lord's glory presently? I would argue no. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but you turn on the news, it's very clear that justice and righteousness is not reigning on this earth, okay? I would argue that a lot of this is still yet to be fulfilled. And Isaiah, and this is true with the prophets, they clearly prophesied, yes, we know exactly what's going to happen, but they didn't clearly see the difference between the first coming and the second coming. 1 Peter 1.11 actually makes that very clear, is that the prophets knew exactly what they were saying. They didn't know the timing of those events. And now that we have the New Testament, we can actually clearly see the timing of those events. Does that make sense? Okay. Thanks for hanging with me. Uh, Isaiah 7.14 is a very important passage. I think it's also good for us to slow down and hit some hard passages every now and then. Um, This is a passage that I have to study in context. I have read Isaiah through numerous times, and the more and more I study, the more I see the connections. and I understand contextually what's going on. So take heart. Take courage. God's word is clear. We can understand it. That doesn't mean it's easy. It means that we need to work to understand it. Hopefully, that encourages you with the birth of the Messiah who has come. If you enjoyed that, then hopefully you're going to enjoy next week because we're going to look at even more complicated passages uh, in Ezekiel. Uh, some prophecies of the Messiah in Ezekiel. If you have any questions, you're more than welcome to come ask. You are dismissed.